the rest of us, let's open up to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for just your faithfulness to speak to our hearts where we are from this ancient text that is inspired by your Holy Spirit. We pray this morning that as we as we read, as we comprehend uh, what is being said and articulated and the things that are there, that we would see Jesus, that our minds would be filled with salvation, our minds would be filled with deliverance and repentance and just fellowship with the Father. Lord, we thank you that you've brought us here this morning, and Lord, I thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the cup. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for the eternal life that we have in him. So bless us as we open your precious word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Story of Joseph. We are going through uh, Genesis. Most of the book of Genesis, actually, I think maybe, did I say a quarter last week? A quarter of the book of Genesis is devoted to this person, this character, Joseph. He's a picture of Christ in so many ways, and as we kind of picked up on two weeks ago, um, we saw uh, in a lot of different ways that his life, his actions, what he does, kind of, it mirrors Jesus in many ways. And so be looking for that as we go through scripture, because I'm reminded of, remember when Jesus rose again from the dead, and he was meeting these two disciples that were uh, on the road to Emmaus. And he had this awesome Bible study with them as they walked and they went. It says that he expounded the scriptures all the way from the beginning, all the way until, you know, through the whole Testament and showed how he was in all of that. And so how deep do you want to go? This story is 1,500 years before Christ. 1,500 years before Christ. And yet it, it has details of his life that are just amazingly similar as we'll see again today. And so look for Jesus as we're going through here. We know that uh, last week, Joseph did not have a, a great uh, childhood, it seemed. It seemed like he was really, uh, well, he was loved by his father. He had an incredible relationship with his father. He was favored by his father. We know that he came from a family with four different moms. And so there's uh, a lot of internal conflict there. But as he grew up, his father, you know, had just had loved, loved him and, and favored him and, and bestowed this one coat upon him. And it was, many believe, they say coat of many colors, but if you look in the margins of your Bible, you'll say it's, it's many pieces. And many believe that that's just, uh, that there was many sleeves, there were layers to the sleeves, and, and therefore it was a person of authority wore those types of coats with long sleeves, because you could put your parchments and all that stuff in there, and you'd write and keep track of everything. And so he wore this at 17, and all his brothers are older than him, and so I'm sure they loved that. And his father gave him this authority, and he sent him to his brothers, and his brothers rejected him. They said, no way. When they saw him coming afar off, they plotted on how they would kill him. And so there he was, young man, 17. His brothers take him, throw him in a pit. But as it so happened, there was a caravan coming by and they decided to make profit off of it and they sold him for 20 pieces of silver and off he went into Egypt. And we see he was sold to Potiphar, 
who was in control of the, he was like the captain of the guard for, um, captain of the secret service for Pharaoh. And so he was in his house and through, he'd be in Potiphar's house, I think, for a period of maybe, uh, I can't remember how many years it is, probably eight or ten or something like that. But he's in there for quite a while and through that time, it says that God promoted him. He was with him that whole time. And God was with him so much that gave him success. And last week we talked about being a, you know, because he was a slave under a, an, an un, uh, unjust situation there, but how God used him and blessed him in that situation. And I related to employment because obviously uh, that's the closest thing we have to d- today in, in our culture, praise God. And we just, uh, we're asking the Lord as we go through here to continue to open up our eyes to see Um, how we live and act in the society we live in, how are we to follow Jesus with all of our hearts. And so uh, continue to look upon the person of Joseph and and see him model Christ in so many ways and see how God works in and through him, through suffering, through difficult circumstances. Our church has suffered a lot. And so how do we, how do, what what mind should, uh, what mindset should we have? What should we be uh, thinking about when things are dark? Uh, when we're in difficult circumstances. God has a plan, church. He has a plan for you. He is working out his plan. It might not feel like it at the moment. It might feel like you are in bondage. But God is working out a plan. And so it says now, Joseph, verse 6, after being in this situation in Potiphar's house, it says, now Joseph was well-built. That's where we picked up, where we left off last week. He was well-built and handsome. He was a stud. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, hey, come to bed with me. Here we have this guy taken from the pit, young, thrown into, thrown into the pit, taken out, sold into slavery, and here he is in this house. God is blessing him. In the midst of oppression and bondage and slavery, God is blessing him. So much so to where the master of the house, who is a very important, prominent person in this society, he doesn't even pay attention to what is going on in his home. He's given all authority to him. He only pays attention to what he eats. That's how blessed Joseph was. The blessings of God were flowing in Joseph, through Joseph, to the people around him. And now we have Potiphar's wife, who tries to seduce Joseph. She is a seductress. She's an adulteress. It's unfortunate. Here's Joseph, a young man who is gifted. He's good looking. He has some status. And a married woman, she approaches him and seeks him out. And she isn't shy about it. And she eventually said, you know, hey, come to bed with me. Proverbs 7 speaks to this type of mindset, this type of woman. And King Solomon, in speaking to his sons, would write these things down and say, this is what I want to train you in. This is what I want you to be mindful of, young man. He says, my son, and I'm only, this is Proverbs 7, I'm going to only read uh, sections of this, but it says, my son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister, and to insight, you're my relative. They will keep you from the adulterous woman. Listen to what I'm saying. It'll keep you from this danger that seems so tangible, so beneficial, so seducing. 
And it goes on to talk about this woman and how she's, how she's dressed and the perfumes and what she says and how crafty she is, and she's lulling this person uh, into adultery. I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money. He's not going to be back. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Verse 21, with persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him and with her, with, with her smooth talk. And all at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. This is a father speaking to his son. Like a deer stepping into a noose till, till an arrow pierced his liver. You hunters know what that's like. You see that fatal wound. How they can step into your sights and how you run them through with a fatal blow. Like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, my son, listen to me. Pay, no, uh, pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stay into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chamber of death. Man, what wisdom. How our young men, how our young women need to hear this today. Don't pay attention to the outward. Don't pay attention to what they're saying and how they look and how enticing it is and all these things. It leads to death. There's no good thing in it. Here Joseph's in a situation where he's being tempted to sin and the woman is making sexual advances at him. Come to bed with me. We make light of it in our society today. We joke about it. We have sitcoms about it. We have fun and, and we get desensitized to the reality of what it does. It's death. It kills. Not only physically, but obviously spiritually and that's what Joseph gets out here. But verse eight says, but he refused Joseph refused, praise God. Joseph said no, and he gave his reasonings. With me in charge, he told her, my master, your husband, by the way, does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife, reminding her of who she is proper authority, proper place, proper position. How then, after all this, after all this authority I have, after all the blessing I've received, how then now could I do such a wicked thing and sin against your husband? Sin against God. Joseph is telling her, hey, look, the goodness I've been given, it's come from God. This authority, this position, it's come from God. I'm second in command. I have nothing withheld from me except you because you're married. And then he says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Ultimately, we sin against God. We don't sin against another person. Yes, we can, but in, in, in the end, we're ultimately sinning against him. And do you get Joseph's mindset? He said, I'll be sinning against God who is with me and who's giving me this position of authority if I did this. We talked about it last week, the fear of God. Now, how many people love to hear about the fear of God? It's like, oh, great, you know, here we go, hellfire and brimstone coming down. It's a mindset, it's a heart, it's the, ref the, the fear 
and it, there's a respect, there's a reverence, there's a love, there's a respect. And, and yeah, I would say like there is a godly fear, like, whoa, man, he is holy. How could I do this and sin against him? It's simply being aware that he is there. John Corson said that, I like that. Being aware that he is there. God is watching. God's involved in my life. God is present. I'm accountable to him. He is the reason I have what I have and I do what I do. And this is the mindset that Joseph lived with, unlike his brother Judah, who went ahead and pursued the adulterous relationship, the prostitution. He gave into that. Joseph was mindful of God. Joseph lived to please God. Joseph loved God. That was his heart, his mindset. And brothers and sisters, sisters, think about this. Joseph is making a difference. He is shining, reflecting God's goodness and his glory to the people around him. Do you think he's a target? Yeah. When I choose, when you choose, when we choose to follow Jesus and say, God, I choose to be your slave. I give up my rights to this life. I am now yours. What do you want, Lord? You're Lord, and he is good. And he begins to work in me, and he begins to work through me. And people become blessed. And people begin to take notice of what God is doing and how that, like Potiphar, wow, he recognized that that came from God. Who else takes notice of that, do you think? We have an enemy. His name is Satan. And he takes notice when you step out in faith, when you start living for Jesus Christ, when you continue to persevere in Jesus Christ, when you resist sin and you follow the Lord. And he wants to take you out. And he will focus on your weakness, men. And he will focus on your weakness, women. And he knows what it is. He's been studying humanity since the beginning. He's the father of all evil. He knows you inside and out. He knows what goes on. He knows how you work. But greater is he that is in you than that which is in the world. I love that. And he's setting up a strategy to take you out. He's setting a strategy to take Joseph out. And sexual temptation specifically here is a target for young and old. It's one of the main ways that the enemy takes people down. Because God designed sex for us to be a blessing. He designed it for us to be a blessing. Did you know that God invented sex? What kind of a God is that? Pretty cool, huh? Sorry, I mean, he's awesome. He designed you to be fulfilled in that, to experience that. That is awesome. And God seeks for us to be fulfilled in that, in its purpose, in its design. If I use this pen for something that is not supposed to be used for, which many MacGyvers do, I understand that. It, it's, it's not, wasn't designed for it. It's not its purpose. And I know that's a very simplistic thing, but God has designed 
sex before marriage to be filled between one man, one woman for life. That is its purpose. That was in his mind that you would be blessed, that it would be a blessing in that context. And he says to Adam and Eve, you two, go for it. I've put you together. Here you go. Love each other deeply. Give, give to each other deeply. And to satisfy that outside of marriage is to satisfy lust, which is what God did not design it for. He did not design that for that. And that's what, it's, it's sinful. Sex is for marriage. That's what it was designed for. The carnal, sinful nature that runs within us all, the part that's rebellious within it's all, us all, will seek to take what God has given us and this is what the enemy does, the blessings of God, and use them to satisfy our sinful nature. We warp it. Look at every good thing God has given. We, the enemy takes to seek that and to warp it and to twist it so the glory would not be given to God, but it would be given to self. Satisfaction for self instead of for another person, so to speak, but in the context of marriage. And he's so crafty at doing this. And Potiphar's wife, she is ruled by her flesh. She's not a spiritual person. Therefore, it is a means to an end. It is to go ahead and satisfy my desires. She says lust and she follows it. And she can call it love. She can call it whatever she wants. But in the end, God is the one who draws the parameters. God is the one who says what it is and what it isn't. And this is how it blesses and this is how it isn't. A computer doesn't say to the programmer, this is what I'm designed for. But Potiphar's wife is ruled by her flesh, not by the Spirit of God, and she goes after these things, warped and sinful. And guess what? Joseph is not that way. He is a young man who is filled with the Spirit of God, who desires to please the Lord. And one day God will give him a wife and he'll be satisfied. But Joseph is submitted to God. How can I do this thing and, and, and sin against God? And, and uh, 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee evil desires of youth. This is Paul talking to a pastor and he said, a young pastor, he says, flee the evil desires of youth. And that word evil desires, that desires is lust. Flee the youthful lusts. It doesn't mean that yes, the lusts are just for the youth. They start in your youth and they go with you all the way. Flee them, Timothy. But he doesn't stop there. He says, flee youthful lusts. And then he said, I'm sorry about that, I missed my place here. He says, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't just run. Pursue. So often we're, 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 we're in this mindset of, oh, just don't do that, and don't do that, and don't do that. God wants you to fill it with him. He wants you to fill that desire with him. Run to him. Flee from, but run to. Pursue faith, love, peace with the brothers and sisters who have a, a heart towards him. I tell you what, when I was younger, when I was, God was calling me out of the world, 
I was entrenched in darkness. Darkness, relationships, uh, music, whatever it was, it was just all about flesh and self and sin, and then the Lord pulled me out of darkness. And I tell you what, if I had not uh, the Lord working through me, if I was not at church, I was in trouble. If I was not in a Bible study or hanging out with brothers and sisters, I would be in trouble. Listen, Jesus is not a crutch. He is life support. He is the, he's the paramedic. He is the ambulance. He is the hospital. He is everything. I do not function apart from him. I am dead in my sins. I am caught up in the old man. Apart from him, I have to lean fully upon him. That's it. Jesus is everything. So flee darkness. Flee. I have no doubt the Holy Spirit is speaking to, to us this morning. Flee that thing. Run. But don't just run. Run to. Run to the Lord. Fill it with righteousness, with peace. Fill it with His word. Fill it with people. Reprogram. Renew your mind. Let the Lord heal you as he's healing me. Amen? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, hey, no temptation has overtaken you except for what is common to mankind. Nothing that's going on in your heart and mind has not happened before. You might say, oh, well, there's technology. Listen, same thing under the sun since the beginning of time. People are broken. Sin is, it's, it's running in all of us. No temptation is, is, is happening to you except for common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, listen to this, when you are tempted, not if you are tempted, when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. He's gonna find an exit. But we sometimes feel like there's no way out. There is a way out. God will provide it. Joseph, as we're going to read, had to run, literally. Ah, he ran from sin. And the next verse, which we always stop, we always stop there. Hey, God will find you, give you a way out. But we never read the next verse, verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Run. Because of this, because God's giving you a way out, Run. But don't just run. Pursue Christ. Get involved with the home fellowship. Get involved in the Bible study. Get involved with hanging out with brothers and sisters. Be in the word. Pray. Start serving one another. You know, you have a problem with stealing? What, is, what, is, uh, what does the scripture say? It says, hey, man, repent. Stop stealing. Go get a job and start giving. What? That's a novel concept. Do the opposite? That's awesome. The Lord wants to take you and make you a blessing. Paul has a lot to say about that, but we won't get into that right now. But enjoy the life that is in Jesus. And a final thing I wanted to point out about Joseph's victory over temptation is that Joseph's resistance to the constant temptation is a picture of Jesus. It says that, he, that in verse 10 that though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. You know, we see a similarity in that Jesus had been given all authority from the Father and was tempted by the tempter. 
And like Joseph, Christ was falsely accused and he did not, he, he, and he did not commit that sin. And brothers and sisters, listen to this. When we sin, when we fail to f- uh, flee, Jesus understands. And this is something important because we talk about, uh, John often talks about, uh, when we're reading like the Gospel of John, he often talks about, hey, this is the ideal. This is what God would have us to do. And he doesn't really mince with the what ifs. You know, Paul talks a lot about the what ifs. But John's like, this is black and white, and he goes for it, and we need that. But Paul also speaks, and, and I think this is Paul in Hebrews, but brothers and sisters, when we sin, when we fail and to flee, when we fail to run, Hebrews 4 says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way. What way are you being tempted in right now? Jesus has been tempted in that way. Yeah, but that's like bad. Yeah. Jesus has been tempted in every way, yet without sin, praise God. He had victory where we did not. Love that. Jesus was tempted yet without sin. 1 John 2, chapter 1 through 2 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, hey, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a lawyer with the Father. We have counsel with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for also all the sins of the whole world. Hey, man, Jesus understands temptation. And he does not condone sin, but he atones for sin. I love that. He calls it what it is, and it hurt. But how he loves and how he longs for his kids to come to him for provision when they blow it. Parents, when your kids are struggling, when they're falling, whatever is going on, where do you want them to go? Not to their room. I'm just saying, what do you want? But where do you want them to go, ultimately? You want them to run to you. Come here, let me help you. I have wisdom in this circumstance, things you cannot see. I have time and and, and just let me help. But you want their heart. And that's what the Lord wants. He wants our hearts. So Joseph, uh, friends, just run, run run to Jesus. Run from sin. You know, run to Jesus when we sin. And Jesus, man, just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Uh, Real quickly, we're gonna bust through the rest of this here. Verse 10, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her over, uh, or even be with her. No phone calls, no texting, no communication. Joseph was, he wasn't given room. Listen, we don't play around with it. It just isn't there. We don't pretend like it's not a temptation. We, We kill it. And so 11, uh, one day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of his household servants uh, was inside. Uh, she caught him by his cloak and said, hey, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out the house. Run away. And when he saw that he had left his cloak, I'm sorry, when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants, look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make some sport, make sport of us. He came in to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me, uh, me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Joseph did everything within his power to maintain his distance. And when it came down to it, he ran, and that was good. But this woman was crazy. 
Sin is not rational, friends. Sin is not rational. And she was scorned. She was upset. And she was not going to be exposed and rejected. And she would do anything to bring the shame and the exposure on him because she was fearful that he would go tell on her. And so, don't, guys, you know, gals, whatever the situation is, it goes both ways. You don't want to be accused of any sexual misconduct whatsoever. You know, that's why when I counsel, if I counsel women, the door is open, five people know, the windows are open, and you know what I'm saying? I don't take people. I don't, you know, I don't do one-on-one opposite sex in my car driving. If they're underage, I, their parents know, be careful. Because the enemy's just looking, especially if you are being used for the Lord, looking for a reason to bring you down. And who's going to believe Joseph? No one. She kept his cloak, for 16 until his master came home and then she told him the story. The Hebrew slave you brought us came to take me, make, make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for her, I'm uh, sorry for help, I'm, I'm having a hard time here. He left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And when his master heard the story, his wife told him saying, hey, this is how your slave treated me. He, he burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoner was confined. So he goes from the pit he goes to Potiphar's house and now he's going to prison unjustly in all those situations. Joseph was innocent. And yet, God is going to be working all things together. But while Joseph was there in prison, hey, what do you know? Verse 21, the Lord was with him and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And so the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success for whatever he did. What do you know? Do you see a pattern developing? He's a kid. His father gives him authority. Potiphar gives him authority. Warden gives him authority. There's something that God wants to do in this guy's life, but there's something that God is working in, that, in this guy's life. He's working something in Joseph's life that will be essential in his purpose in life and God is doing it through suffering. How many of you are suffering? How many of you are in prison? How many of you are in jail? Think God might be doing something in your heart, in your mind? Extended period. Think God wants to use you? Think God has to do some character development in you and me? I think so. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. Awesome. Chapter 40. And sometime later, the cupbearer, the baker of the, king, uh, of the king of Egypt, offended their master. So we got two people, the cupbearer and the baker. Of the king, they offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials and the chief cupbearer and the chief baker and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph. What do you know? And he attended them doesn't say what they did but I can't help but see Jesus in this situation Isaiah 53 speaks of Jesus and it says that he was counted among the transgressors and here Joseph is with two transgressors similar to the two thieves 
And Jesus would minister to those two thieves on the cross, and one of the thieves would have faith in Jesus, and the other one would not. One would go on to be with Jesus in paradise, and the other would not. And here Joseph is in between these two criminals, so to speak. And one is going to hear words of salvation, and one's going to hear words of damnation. And after that, after they had been in custody for some time with Joseph, verse 5, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, he had a dream the same night, and each dream had the meaning of its own. Verse 6, Joseph, James, little boy, remember? Joseph, the dreamer. It's not a, a coincidence that he's in this situation and these people are having dreams. And so he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, hey, why do you look so sad today? Well, we both had dreams, they answered. But there's no one to interpret them. And then Joseph said to him, said to him don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. We're going to see a progression there. Hey, God, they belong to God, but tell me your dreams. Remember when he was young, what did he say? Hey, I have these dreams, check it out. Now it's a little different. God gives the interpretation of dreams, tell them to me. Pay attention, because next time he says that, next week, it'll be different. And so the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. And he said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine. So the cupbearer has this dream. He says, I saw a vine in front of me. And on the vine were three branches. And as soon as it budded, it blossomed. And its clusters were ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. And I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. Hey, in three days, your head will be lifted up. You'll be restored. So much here. Really quickly, in, in closing here, the last two pictures here. The cup. Jesus asked to let this cup pass from him. The cup of suffering. There's, there's two aspects to the cup. Remember that? The night before he died, he was praying. He was in Gethsemane. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? And he cries out and he says, hey, if, if I could have this cup pass from me, that's what I would really like. But nevertheless, your will be done. And he asked him. The Lord said no three times. And that word Gethsemane, the garden where he was, that means wine press. That's where he was being crushed. And what is the picture that is happening here? These grapes, crushed, put into a cup. Jesus sweat great drops of blood in Gethsemane. Jesus took the cup of suffering and the cup of wrath so that we could drink the cup of salvation. I love that. Jesus was crushed. Though he was crushed, he was lifted up three days later. But then in verse 14, and this is an interesting verse. It says, but when all goes well with you, jo Joseph is speaking, hey, when you're restored, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried, carried off from the land of the Hebrews and here I have done nothing to deserve being put in this dungeon. Hey, remember me. Who said that? Who said remember me? What was that? Jesus said that too, right? Right? We'll get there. But 
the thief on the cross, said, hey, remember me when you get back into the kingdom. Remember me. Luke 22, 42, 43. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Remember me when you get back into your kingdom. Joseph is saying the same thing uh, to the cupbearer. Hey, remember me when you get back. When we take the cup, we do it in remembrance of Jesus. And we'll talk about that more. But when the chief baker saw Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, the other goes, hey, this is cool. It's all good news. He said to Joseph, I, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. So the first guy had a cup. The second guy had bread. Hmm. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole. How many of you are reading a different version? What does it say? They're trying to, it means lumber. That's what it means. It means wood. You'll be impaled on wood. How do you get impaled on wood? And the birds will eat away your flesh. That word for pole, obviously, is is wood. You're going to be impaled on a tree within three days. And so, two prisoners with Joseph, one lifted up to salvation, restored to the kingdom, the cup. And the other did damnation, the bread. The reality is this is obviously a picture of communion. That his blood gives us salvation. He took the cup of wrath. He took the cup of trembling. He took the cup that he wanted to pass so that we could drink his blood. So that we could have salvation. He took what was due us so that we could go free. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that. I gladly drink the cup of salvation. That's what we do. With the bread, we know that the bread means life, manna and all those things, but it also pictures, in order for his blood to flow, what had to happen? His body had to be broken. He had to be cut off. He had to experience damnation. He had to be experience separation. His body was broken. By his stripes, we were healed. So we have this picture. He was, his body was put on a tree. There's so much here. But the analogies are deep. Dig for yourself. The two thieves, salvation, damnation, communion, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the promise of heaven, the grapes that were squeezed. We didn't even get into the grapes that were squeezed and they were put into the Pharaoh's hand, the Father's hand, so to speak, to satisfy. You could go on and on. It amazes me. There's over 300, I think, of these pictures that people have mined out in the story of Joseph. This is all happening 1,500 years before Christ. Verse 20 and ending. 
Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. And he lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of all his officials. The third day speaks of the resurrection. And it says he restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And verse 22 says he impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had said in his interpretation. That day when the sheep and the goats will be separated. The resurrection. The resurrection of the unjust to the white throne judgment where they will be judged according to what they've done and the resurrection of the righteous to the mercy seat, the bema seat, where we'll be rewarded. There's only two camps, friend, you're in one or the other. There's only two camps, one or the other. And so the question is, are you righteous or are you unrighteous? That's it. There's no in between. You are either righteous or you're unrighteous. And as I've preached so many times and as we believe, Lord, I am unrighteous in myself. You are my righteousness, Lord Jesus. If you are thinking that you can earn salvation, you are unrighteous. You are mistaken. Salvation, being saved from the wrath to come, is a gift from God, and it is found in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. He did it all. He paid it all. He bro- it was broken. All you do is you say, yes, you receive, and God gives. He is our provision for sin. He is our provision for salvation. He is the cup. He is the bread. He did it all. His body was torn so that yours wouldn't have to be. That's where we stand, church. We stand in grace. Grace, not works. Grace, God's unmerited, I didn't deserve favor. He loves us. And he just offers his son because he loves you. Will you receive will you receive? That's it. To those of us that say, thank you. He comes in and he possesses us and he fills us with his Holy Spirit. He changes us from the inside out. It's not an outside-in relationship where we go and we do all these 55 things and then God says, okay, now you're righteous. No, Jesus did the 55 things, the 5,000 things, the how many things had to be fulfilled in the law. Kept them all, was without sin. And we get to drink of salvation. We don't get to drink the cup of wrath. We get to drink the cup of salvation. We enjoy Christ. He loves you. And he showed it time and time again. In verse 23, this verse convicts me. It says, The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Here's the chief cupbearer. He was set free. He was restored. He was back into the kingdom. No longer in fear of death and separation from the king. And yet he forgets the one who spoke it to him when he was in the dungeon of sin. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to close today. This is why I kind of went long. I want to offer you the opportunity to remember Jesus. 
He remembers you. He thinks of you every moment. You're the apple of his eye, how he loves you. And so what we're not gonna do is we're not, I know, well, it's like, what? We had communion last week. We've, we've done that, check. What I would like to do is I would like to pray and close the service. And if you feel like this is something the Lord's put on your heart, you can come up and grab a cup, maybe with you and your family, and sit in the seat for a second, and you can take communion uh, by yourself or with your family. It's not a law thing. Enjoy. It's here if you want it. No one's looking and go, oh, they didn't go. They're not spiritual. It's a worship thing. If you want to, great. If you're like, oh, Lord, I love you. You need to go, then go. But if in this morning, your heart is like, I've forgotten you. And I, I, I remember you now. Enjoy the cup. Enjoy the bread. Enjoy Jesus this morning. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this day. And God, there's so much that we have to be thankful for. Our lives are thoroughly blessed because of you. Lord, we want to bring you glory. And we thank you when we do. And we thank you for the victory over sin that we have in you. We thank you when you give us just the strength to resist temptation. We thank you when we see the way out and we get to run. Lord, I know there's people here in this morning, Lord, myself included, there's, there's, there's temptation in our lives that just overwhelms us. And Lord, we, we fail so often. I thank you that you sympathize with us. You don't endorse our sin. You bled for it. But you want us to come and run to you, to run out and just embrace you. So if there's a brother or a sister here this morning, someone who's just overwhelmed, just want you to know the Lord has provision, but you have to run to him. And not only fleeing from sin, but running to Jesus and embracing him. So Spirit, I pray that you would minister to your body this morning and build them up and encourage them according to your will. That we would experience the deep, rich fellowship that you offer. Lord, no football game can satisfy that. No relationship, nothing could ever satisfy you. And Lord, there are things in in my life and in, in the lives of your children here that we go, oh, but I like that so much. Lord, help us to see it in light of the cross and realize that you're not only gonna we have to die to that thing, whatever that might be, but you will fill it with something else if we allow you to. And it'll be good, and it'll be right, and it'll be full. So do the work in the hearts of your children this morning in my heart. Thank you so much for this opportunity. We love you, Lord. Amen.